Well, I'm going to talk to you this morning about hope. There was a medical doctor who was also a clinical psychologist. His name was Dale Archer. And he said this. He said, if I could find a way to package and dispense hope, I would have a pill more powerful than any antidepressant on the market. This man's not a Christian. He said, hope is often the only thing between a man or woman and the abyss. He said, as long as a patient has hope, they can recover from anything and everything. Now, what he said in that article, what I'm quoting him from saying is true. What he didn't say is, how do you get it? Where do you find this hope? I mean, we all know hope's a good thing. Everybody in here has some type of hope that you're, you're sinking your teeth in this morning. It's either a dead hope or a living hope. It's either a hope that resonates and helps, or it's a hope that really has nothing to offer you. So while he does say hope is important, he almost leaves the end of the article and says, well, so go out and get yourself some hope and hang on to it for dear life. But what he doesn't share is where do we find this hope? And that's a question that the Bible answers. And some of these verses that Bree read for us earlier are just filled with hope, filled with hope and filled with power and filled with freedom. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So our, our outline today is really easy, <laughs> just two points. And the first one's going to be long, so don't be scared when we... When we Take up the majority of our time in the first point. I'm just going to cover two things. The title of this message is Hope That Can Face Anything. Hope that can face anything. Anything. No matter what it is that you're going through now or coming out of or that you're headed into that you don't know about yet. So the two points are, number one, hope that can face death and hope that can face life. <laughs> Those are the two most crippling realities in the world we live in, aren't they? Hope that can face death and hope that can face life. Point number one, hope that can face death. I don't want to help you just cope with the reality of death. I want you to be able to look death in the face and smile. Because whether we want to admit it or not, everyone here is going to die. Ten out of ten people die. You can hate it, you can resent it, you can go kicking and screaming, but all of us in this room are going to one day face the reality of death. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews 9.27. It says, It has been appointed unto man once to die, and then to be judged. There's nothing that you can do about it. And people hate that. That's why nobody really talks about death at the water cooler, <laughs> right? Nobody wants to get up and go to a funeral. That's not on anybody's priority list. We don't want to be reminded of our, of our mortality, that there's an end to this, right? Humanly, earthly speaking. We know that. We hate that. We dread that. We resent that. We don't want to see it, we don't want to hear it, we don't want to talk about it. It's hard to accept the fact that one day our bodies are going to be planted in the ground like a seed and somebody's going to refer to us in the past tense. One day some kid's going to wander into a graveyard and mispronounce your last name on a tombstone and pick his nose and wonder what's for lunch. <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That reality rattles a lot of us. We don't like that. We're not okay with death and we're not okay with dying. Not at all. Death is a powerful enemy. And people are saying, wait a minute, hang on. You just, you just jumped, preacher. You said it's bad, and now you're saying it's an enemy. Well, I'm not actually saying that. Did you know that the Bible actually personifies death and calls it an enemy? Not just an enemy, the enemy. Check this out. 1 Corinthians actually says in 1526, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I can't think of a better description than enemy. Can you? What would you call something that tears your family to pieces, that ends relationships, 
that destroys dreams, rips away your retirement, what would you call that? A friend? An ally? No. The Bible pegs exactly how we should view death. The right perspective we should have is that it is an enemy. It is not welcome here. It's an invader. You know that, right? God did not create human beings to die in the beginning. We were made perfect. We were made upright. We were put in a perfect environment. We had perfect relationships with God, with one another, with the animals, with the planet. And then the Bible says, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, their disobedience, they ate from the forbidden tree, and he warned them. He said, surely, the day that you eat this forbidden fruit, you shall die. And he meant spiritually, and they did die. And Romans 5.12 says this, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And through that one sin, death spread to all people. So not only is death this enemy, it's, it's an intruder, it's an invader. It came through Adam's rebellion, through disobedience to God, and death and decay and corruption have spread everywhere. The Puritans used to say that the slime of Adam's rebellion has covered the entire earth. There's not any one place where you don't see the reality of death. It's everywhere. We can close our eyes, but it will still find us. It's interesting to me, even the people that want to tell us that, you know, death is just, it's just really natural. It's mysterious, but it's, you know, we sing songs about it, the circle of life, right? That's the best that Disney can even offer us. You know, whenever Mufasa, the daddy lion, was talking to Simba, his son, he said, now son, there's the circle of life, and you see the antelope over there? We eat the antelope, but they eat the grass. And one day we die, and we go into the earth, and we nourish the grass, and they eat us. It's a circle of life. Well, that doesn't do anything for me. That doesn't help. Does that help you? It's still an enemy. I'm still going to face it, and it's going to be bad news. And people know that. They know that. In fact, I did a little Google search, and this is one of the first images I found for death. Does that look natural to you? Everybody knows it. Even unbelievers know this and acknowledge this. Death is an enemy. It's not welcome. It's dark. It's mysterious. It's frightening. And that's okay. I know there's children in here today. That's good. We need, we need to teach our children these things. Death is an invader. It's a terrible enemy. And listen, we're powerless against it. We can't face it on our own. There, I'll take the image down. How's that? <laughs> we all know that. It's not natural. It's not this circle of life. It's a dead end. Right? For many people, it's exactly what it is. And that's what the Bible says. And it's the most democratic experience on the planet, everybody faces death. It doesn't matter what your background, what your last name is, what continent you were born on, what socioeconomic level you're at, you're going to face death one day. You will. There was an Italian play written in 1934, and it was called Death Takes a Holiday. And the idea was that death uh, became a person and wanted to know why people were so afraid of him. So he became a person, came to earth, and for three days he went around trying to figure out what's so menacing about me that people hate me and run from me. Well, in 1998, that play was made into a movie, and it was given a fresh script, a fresh title, um, and some new actors, and it was called Meet Joe Black. Now, I'm not endorsing the movie, okay? It's been a long time since I've seen it, over 20 years ago. But Brad Pitt played the part of death. That's brilliant, right? <laughs> Give death the most handsome face you can to try and lessen the effect. And Anthony Hopkins played the part of a billionaire in this movie who was about to retire. It was his 65th birthday. He was retiring from his family-owned business. And he was having this big party. 
But unbeknownst to him, on the same day that he had his retirement party, he was going to die. And so the whole movie is just moving toward this crescendo. And I don't remember everything about the movie, but I remember the very end was very moving. It was very moving. It was like the night of Anthony Hopkins' life, right? He said his piece. All his friends and family were there, had the most wonderful celebration and party. He made peace with everybody. He hugged everybody. He gave a speech. And then at the very end, it showed him walking off into the distance over this little bridge, and there were fireworks. I kid you not. There were fireworks going off in the sky, and Joe Black, death, came and joined arms with him, and they're walking over the bridge, and fireworks are, are popping off. And he turns to, to death, and he says, I'm feeling a little bit dizzy. My heart's starting to beat. Should I be afraid? And Brad Pitt turned and looked at him, and he says, not a man like you. And then they walk off into the distance with fireworks going off. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is that the way that death goes down for most people? <laughs> you've said your peace, you've hugged everybody, you've retired, you've said your goodbyes, fireworks are going off, and happily ever after. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I want to read, some, I want to read the street version, unedited, raw, unvarnished version of death for you. And this is pretty, I'm just warning you, this is pretty grimacing, but this happens a lot. And this was written actually by a medical student who went to medical school because of the way she watched her mother die. And this was, uh, this was her name was Barbara Simone, and, and her mom died at 67. This is what she wrote. Mom died at 67, back in 2009. But lately, I've been reflecting on her last days. Nothing in med school could be worse than watching the way my mother died. Her death was so grisly that I vowed to help and change the way people die in America. Mom had chronic liver condition and autoimmune disease that had been under control for years, but suddenly worsened. After her liver failed, her kidneys followed, then her lungs. After four months in the ICU, she was on 24-hour dialysis with a breathing tube down her throat and a feeding tube up her nose. She hated all the tubes. Her hands were tied to the bed, so she couldn't pull them out. She needed a liver transplant, but was too sick to survive one. Then a fungal infection, then a fungal infection invaded her lungs, dodged the antibiotics, and spread through her body. On a Friday afternoon in August, our family met with the doctors. If we left mom on life support, the fungus would eat her alive. It would be a cruel death, they said. It's already been a cruel death, I thought. We decided to let mom go. And so there we were, standing at the edge of my mother's life. After the nurse removed the tubes and the machines, we gathered around the hospital bed. The doctors didn't know how long she could live without life support, somewhere between 15 minutes and a week. We didn't tell her that she was dying, but she understood. She'd been a nurse for 28 years, and she knew that the game was up. But she was happy, thrilled to be off the ventilator. She talked. She made jokes. She greedily sucked on mouth swabs soaked in ginger ale. Maybe this won't be so bad, I thought. Evening came. Most of the family went out for a break, leaving my brother, uncle, and me with mom. Moments later, her face crumbled into despair. As we held her hands, she sobbed silently, turning her head from side to side. She didn't speak, she just wept. She wept for fear of death, for the betrayal of her body, for the hopelessness of it all. 
She wept for the places she would never visit, the retirement she would never have. She wept for her only grandchild, my son, who would not remember her. She wept for the second grandchild in my pregnant belly, whom she would never meet. I have never seen such anguish. I have never felt so helpless. My stomach churned in panic. I had no experience with death or consoling the dying. I made peace with her death, but not with her dying. She had four months in the ICU, endless and pointless and painful procedures, and final days full of fear and despair. See, that's the reality of death, isn't it? It's an enemy. It's a fierce enemy. It's a thief, and it's a robber, and it's a, and it's a monster. One person called it a monster. It is. And honestly, whether you die the way that Barbara's mother died, or whether you die in your sleep, you still die. And we're all powerless against the enemy. We need help. Now listen, I can tell you, hey, look, don't sweat it. Death is overrated. Don't even worry about it, man. You got this. Like some self-help book. But I'm not going to do that. And here, in fact, in here, I'm going to argue that there are plenty of sobering reasons to be fearful of death. Right? The Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one. See, we know that death is not the end. Not really. Death is just you being rushed into the presence of God and to stand before Him, a holy and a just and a righteous God, and give an account of your life. And the Bible says none of us in here have any righteousness to offer God to appease Him. None. We're sinful and we're rebellious. All of us are. And the wages of sin is what? Death. It's what the Bible says. And our experience would, would validate that if we were honest. And that's terrifying. Now, don't tune me out because I'm, I'm getting to the good news here, okay? This is the best part. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, but who's going to destroy it? You going to destroy it? <laughs> I don't think so. You going to dodge that bullet? No, you're not. It's been appointed for all of us. And this verse that Bree read earlier, it says, can you see that? 1 Corinthians 15, it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You hear that? Somebody's going to swallow death. That word swallow, it means to completely consume something and devour it. See, we think death is this devouring monster, and it is. But the Bible says there's a more powerful reality that's able to consume death. My kids love dinosaur movies, and one of my sons loves Jurassic World. And there's a part in Jurassic World where the enemy dinosaur, Indominus Rex, it looks like he's going he's gonna to win, and he's going to defeat the other T-Rex, right? And he's on the edge of the ocean there, and then now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this creature called Mosasaurus, and like completely swallows up Indominus Rex and drags him into the water. It's like a, a, a plot twist in the movie. And this is the plot twist in the Bible. It's like, here's death, this menacing monster. Nobody can stand and face him. Nobody can defeat him. And then there's Jesus who comes and actually taunts death. I love this. I love this about the Bible. No other religion in the world has the audacity and the boldness or the authority to stand in the presence of death and taunt it. Hey, death, is that all you got? Is that your best shot? Seriously, that's all you're going to do? That's, that's the language of this scripture. It's like, death, you don't have a victory. Death, you don't even have a threat to me, bro. You're not even a threat. You're not that menacing anymore. And here's why. Look at the second part of this. The sting of death is sin. 
I'm allergic to stings of all kinds. It could be really dangerous for me to get stung. That's why I'm really careful when I'm chasing yellow jackets and squirting them with water and whatnot. <laughs> but you know what? If death is compared to this deadly, this, this deadly insect, the Bible says that the sting of it is sin. So why is death not so menacing when Jesus stands in front of it? Because listen, listen, here's the most powerful reality about death. The wages of sin is death. But if you have sin that's forgiven, then death is not a threat to you anymore. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. On the cross, he took the full payment for your sin. But that's not, that's not all he did. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Well, what's that talking about? You've broken God's law, right? And in order for us to get to heaven, somebody has to give us a, a perfect record. We have to keep, keep every jot and tittle of the law. Did you know that? Nobody in here is ever going to get to heaven and get the approved stamp on their paper unless you've kept all of the law of God. Now, how are y'all doing with that? How many people in here have perfectly kept God's law? Let me answer that for you. None of you have, and neither have I. In my best five minutes, I couldn't offer it to God. It would be tarnished and stained and corrupted. But here's the good news. Jesus kept every jot and tittle of the law. The Bible says he was the spotless lamb of God. He was perfect. He never sinned in word. He never sinned in thought. He never sinned in deed. Ever. Jesus never had a bad attitude. He never talked back to his mother. He never had a lustful or unclean or unrighteous thought. And that's hard for us to comprehend, but that's the reality of what the Bible says. So Jesus kept the law on our behalf, and he offers us that righteousness. And Jesus also took the penalty that we deserve for breaking God's law. That's the violation we, that we call sin. And look at verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, his victory is our victory. That's the beauty of it. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says something interesting. It says that Jesus is the captain of our soul. There's a word there in Greek, and it actually means champion. You know what this idea of champion means? It means that there's somebody who's fighting on your behalf. You can't do it. And there's, there's pictures of this all through the Bible. One of them is probably the most famous you can think of. There's this giant from Gath named Goliath. Menacing terrifying. He's this monster. And he's taunting the Israelites for 40 days and 40 nights out in the battlefield. It's really interesting if you read this, I think in 1 Samuel 17. There was a valley, and in, in, in the valley, Goliath would walk down, and the Israelites are on this side. And it says he walked down and taunted them, and they backed up. They weren't going anywhere near them. And he said, why don't you send somebody to fight me? I don't have to kill all of you. That'd be wearisome. Just send one champion. Just send one person to represent you. And if they beat me on your behalf, we'll all go home and nobody else has to die. And you remember King Saul, the Bible says, the champion of Israel, he was taller than all the other Israelites, head and shoulders. And he was cowering, shaking in his sandals. He wouldn't do it. And this is the, the plot twist of all the Bible. The most, the most unlikely person steps forward and says, I'll fight him right? I'll do it. It's like, what? Huh? Oh, who's that? Oh, that's that little shepherd boy. That's like the seventh son of the seventh son of the seventh son of Jesse, right? He's some nobody that watches sheep. And he says, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of him. 
God gives me victory when I protect my sheep. I kill lions, I kill bears. I'd kill tigers if they were in Israel, you know. He goes, I'll fight him, and he does. He fights him on behalf of all of Israel. And you know what's interesting? All of Israel share in the victory that David secures for them. And they didn't lift a finger. None of them did. They didn't do anything. You know what they did? They stood in the background and trembled, praying to God that this shepherd boy knew what he was doing with his little sling. So often, have you heard that story taught? And when you face your giants, that's not what the story's about. <laughs> As if we're David in that story. We're not. You know who we are in that story? We're the Israelites. Scared to death. Or worse, we're the Philistines. Shaking our fist in God's face. We're not David. You know who David represents in that story? Jesus. <laughs> we're not David. <laughs> David represents Christ. And listen, he's our champion. That means he stood between you and death and he said, I'll do it. You can't do it. You're not able. You're not able to do it. I am and I'll do it on your behalf. And there's, there's other pictures. Pharaoh is like this antichrist, arch-evil uh, representative in the Old Testament standing against Israel, chasing them. They're trapped. And an 80-year-old man with a walking stick delivers them through God's power, right? It's the same thing. To me, those things represent death. They represent unconfessed or unforgiven sin. And God says, I am the only one who is able to do this. And you know why? Check this out. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24 this is the first sermon that the Apostle Peter preached after the day of Pentecost. And he said this. He says, this Jesus that you crucified, this Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And look at verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for him to be held by death. I love the picture of this paints. That word held, it actually means to be arrested, to be detained, to be grabbed and to be, to be held somewhere. You can't go. You've you got to stay right here. When I was a young man, I was self-employed. I was a carpenter and I would do any job that I could to make ends meet. I was tired of working for corporate Walmart, you know? So I threw my, my blue apron, my smock away, and I said, I'm going to make the real money. So I worked like 120 hours a week and didn't make squat, and I learned my lesson. But anyway, I was a carpenter, and I was self-employed, and, and I had been working all day and all night trying to finish this tile job out of town. And I finished it like at 2 in the morning on a Friday or Saturday morning, I guess. And I was beat. I was dirty. I smelled. I was disgusting. I took my shirt off. I got in my four-wheel drive truck. I rolled the windows down. And man, I'm just ready to go home. And out of nowhere, I hear the boop, boop, boop. And the blue lights turn on. And I'm like, oh, man. Sorry, chief. No offense. <laughs> and I got pulled over. And this, and this cop got the bullhorn out. And I'm like, oh, man. He said, step out of the vehicle. Put your hands where I can see them. And I'm like, oh, man. He thinks, he thinks I'm a thug, I guess. You know, I don't have a shirt on. And probably playing loud music, I don't remember. Anyway, so I got out of the car and he said, walk around to the back, put your hands on the tailgate, spread your legs. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm stinking getting arrested for working, you know? So he, he walks up and he's talking to me and asking me some questions and then he says this. He says, is there anything in the cab of your truck that you need to tell me about? And I was like, oh man. Now, I wasn't saved at the time, Okay. I'm like, man, is there, is there anything in the cab of my truck? I mean, I, I don't know. I can't, you know, I wasn't doing anything bad that night. I was actually working, but 
I don't know, some of my employees had used the truck and, you know, I'd used the truck before and then I hear him issue a command. I'm like, man, he's got another officer with him. I turn around, it's a dog. He's got the canine unit. Now look, man, I'm just telling you, I was, I was your typical 21-year-old kid and all kinds of stuff, and I'm nervous. I'm shaking in my boots. So he gets this dog, and he goes up, and he's going through the cab of my truck, and I'm back there with my hands on the tailgate with my legs spread, and I'm shaking. I'm just, I just want to go home. I didn't do anything wrong, officer. And you know what? Honestly, he could have probably found something in the cab of my truck to hold me and to detain me. But he got a call. It was an emergency call. I think what actually happened, somebody did something really bad that had a truck like I had. And he mistake, mistook me for somebody else. And so off he went and I was praising God all the way home. But listen, the picture there is you and I definitely have something that the pangs of death can hold us. We could be arrested and there would be plenty of charges that would justify our being contained and thrown into prison, right? But not Jesus. Not Jesus. They could get the canine unit. They could go through his life with a fine-tooth comb, and it wouldn't matter. They don't have anything. He even said that the night of his arrest and betrayal. He said, the prince of this world, talking about Satan, the prince of this world comes, and he has nothing in me. There's nothing, there's nothing that could even tempt me to sin, is what Jesus was saying. Isn't that a powerful picture? You and I can't say that, but Jesus can. He's the champion that stands between us and death. And the Bible says he swallowed death. It says he actually abolished death. He destroyed it. How did, how did he do that? Well, Jesus, listen, he walked right into the jaws of death and he burst through on the other side. It couldn't hold him. It couldn't hold him. He had no sin. He had no unrighteousness. He's our champion. He conquered it. Could not hold him. He was sinless. We're not. That's why Revelation, listen to this. Revelation chapter 1 says this. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and Hades. If you have the keys to something, what does that make you? In control. You got access to it. You're the master. You own it. And Jesus says, look, I've got the keys to death and the grave. They're mine. So you don't have to be afraid ever, ever again. I have fought this battle on your behalf, and I have gained the victory, and so the victory is yours, and we can all taunt death because of that. So that's the first thing that this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8 tells us. And you know what? He even goes further in this passage. If you look at the last part, this is the best part of this chapter. The whole thing, all 58 verses, is about the resurrection. And the very end of this says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Can I just ask you a practical question this morning? Does that describe you? Because here, this is why we're doing this on Easter. I think the resurrection is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church, and I've been guilty of it too. We really find a way once a year to really talk about it, right? But friends, the Bible says that the truth and the reality of the resurrection ought to make you and I immovable, invincible, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that what we're doing is not in vain. We don't have to succumb to the vanity that the world around us comes to, thinking that there's just meaninglessness everywhere. Nothing has any purpose, nothing has any meaning. Is that the reality in your life this morning? Would you describe yourself as steadfast and immovable? You're unshakable. No matter what happens, no matter what conflict your marriage is in, 
No matter what diagnosis you received or you're waiting to receive. No matter what phone call in the middle of the night is going to yield. No matter what your parenting with your children is like. Or your relationship to your mom and dad. Or somebody very close to you being ripped away from you. Untimely. Suffering profound loss. Are you still unshakable? Because the Bible says because of what Jesus did for us. We ought to be unshakable. See, Jesus turned death from an executioner into a gardener. He really did. You can face death and you can smile at it because of what Jesus did. Because we'll never face the substance of death. We just face the shadow. That's what Psalm 23 says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the what? Shadow of death. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather get hit by a semi loaded down with Mercedes Benz going 120 miles an hour? Or would you rather get hit with the shadow of that truck? That's what I thought. See, we get hit with the shadow of death. That's it. It fades. It passes. We can taunt it and say, listen, the lower you lay me, the higher Jesus will raise me. Because his victory is my victory. He's my champion. I'm putting all of my hope in him. Not in anything else. Not in my flawed life. Not in my flawed beliefs. I'm trusting in him. I'm banking it all on him. That's a living hope. And here's the second point. Hope that can face life. Did you hear the, uh, the verse in Romans chapter 8 where it says that we are more than conquerors? Not only did we just conquer. I played football in high school. And sometimes coaches would get in trouble for running up the score to really humiliate their opponent because coaches didn't like each other in Arkansas. I don't know why. They're supposed to be really you know, good buddies and cross the field and shake their hand. It wasn't like that. They wanted to humiliate the opposing team's coach. And so instead of putting in second string, third string, they would leave first string in the whole game and run up the scoreboard. So that you didn't, you couldn't just say you beat that team. No, you were more than conquerors. <laughs> we, it was like a shutout. They never scored and we ran up the, the scorecard to 100 to nothing. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. And that's what Romans chapter 8 is talking about. But there's something else that's really interesting in that passage. And I want you to see it with me. He says, the Apostle Paul says, Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, so this is all tied to the resurrection, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says this. No, in all these things, that list he just gave, nakedness, sword, famine, persecution, he says, in all these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is the most interesting thing that I want to draw your attention to. He says, For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what Paul is doing, he's putting your worst fears up on a billboard in front of you. He's saying, do you see all these things that scare you, that are menacing, that are threatening, threatening to you? None of those things can touch your relationship with God. None of them can separate you from God's love. But here's something that's interesting to me. And my wife actually pointed this out to me the other day. I told her, I said, I got to go, go sit outside and just 
meditate on this. This is amazing. She said, isn't it interesting how not only does he say death, we all get that. I just talked about that. That was the whole half of the first two-thirds of the sermon is that we have hope that can face death. But it's interesting, he says life. Do you know what is more of a menacing reality than death for some people? You know what represents a worse scenario than dying to them is staying alive? Did you know that? Did you know, friends, that suicide rates in the last 10 years, there, there are some seriously disturbing and unsettling and alarming trends. It's up 30%. It has spiked. People are, are more depressed and sad and less optimistic of the future than they've ever been. To the extent they're saying, I can't take this. To me, facing death would represent a better reality than to go on living like this. 47,000 people in the United States took their own life in 2017. Did you know in London, 84 men kill themselves every single week? Every single week, 84 men say, I can't do this anymore. Why is that? Why is that? Because men are living in agony and women in anguish, just swallowed up with darkness, no hope. Maybe because they're in bondage. Just addiction swallows them up. They just can't see any way out. So for many of them, it's, I, I was reading a, uh, an article about suicide and it was somebody trying to help families that are left behind, trying to pick up the pieces and they're battling anger. How could that person do this to us? How could they be so selfish? And he was saying, look, don't think of it that way. For many people, if you could use the analogy, they're going to jump off of a building. He said, What's a, the, the worst fear than the fall in front of them are the flames behind them. That's their life. The fire is their life. I've got to get out. Cannot handle this. It's interesting to me that Paul said that. So many people just cannot handle the, the life that they're living. It's just so dark and they're in the throes and they're in the grip of just a, a, maybe a, a marriage that's fallen to pieces or a sickness that's overwhelming them. Whatever it is. We need hope. We need hope. And what you believe about the future, it has bearing on the present. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that there are two women. They're both 30 years old. And I hire them. I say, look, this is going to be a very boring job, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take part A and put it into the slot and part B and then hand it to somebody. And I want you to do that eight hours a day, 40, wait, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week for one year. And both women are the same age, same socioeconomic bracket. Both come from the same background. They both get the same amount of coffee breaks a day, okay? And both of the rooms are ventilated the same. Nothing's different except this. The first woman, I tell her, I will pay you at the end of the first year $30,000. The second lady, I tell her, at the end of the year, I'm going to pay you $30 million. Now, let me ask you a question. <laughs> After the first two weeks, and they're in the break room talking, do you think the conversation might go something like that? Something like this? The first lady says, isn't this tedious work? I can't bear to think of doing this for another, you know, nine months. And the second woman says, are you kidding me? <laughs> no way. This is amazing. I'm loving this. I'm whistling while I'm working. Now look, this is not just to say that greed makes a difference. It's to say this. What you believe about the future affects the present. 
Isn't that true? It's true. This is what, this is what one man said. He said it like this. We cannot bear life by living only in the present, facing one disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desire. We are future-oriented beings, and so we must understand ourselves as being in a story that leads somewhere. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim back-of-the-mind suspicion that we are all adrift in an absurd, an absurd world. What he's saying is, we really need hope, don't we? We need a living hope. And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter says. Check this out. Now remember, and I'm closing with this, friends. Now remember, the Apostle Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times. You remember this? Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested. He was taken to see uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod. And in the courtyard, Peter sees him, and he denies him three times with cursing. Cowardly Peter. But something changes in Peter's disposition, and he ended up writing an epistle that's recorded for us in the Bible, and this is what he said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you hear that? He says, there is a living hope that you can have based on the resurrection of Jesus. This is not all that there is. Everything that we see, everything that we experience is going to be made new again. Do you know that's what the resurrection really says? It's about life coming out of death. It's about something that looked like it was absolutely the end. Jesus being crucified, it looked... Looked like defeat, but it ended up being victory, right? That's what living hope is. That's what he's talking about here. Everything's going to be renewed. Everything's going to be restored. The resurrection is not just about some consolation prize, friends. It's about victory. Jesus is going to make everything new. We're going to have a new planet. We're going to have new bodies. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. No more sickness. No more cancer. No more wars. No more disease. No more death. No more tsunamis and volcanoes and wildfires and hurricanes. None of those things. The resurrection says there will be an end to all of that. And that's a living hope. That's what the empty tomb means. That means if that really happened, and it did, since that really happened, we can face anything. We can face anything with renewed hope. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not death, not life. We are more than conquerors. And if Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave, that means that we truly will escape time and we will escape death and we'll know true love without ever ending and we'll see evil, death, and suffering defeated forever. I think that's, that's the most crippling thing is people see so many injustices, so many wrongs, even politically. <laughs> they see a system that's broken and flawed because broken and flawed men and women inhabit that system, right? And Jesus is going to make all things new. And listen, this is the best news in the world. This one who stood in your place, who took the punishment that you and I deserve, whose victory can be yours, he came to deliver you and I from our sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are desperate and, you, and that you need the hope and the forgiveness and the cleansing and the power that only Jesus Christ can offer you? 
See, only Christianity offers this. Every other religion, listen to me, friends, I'm closing with this. Every other religion in the world says this. In order for you to be right with God, you have to do things. You have to try a little bit harder, work a little bit longer, sweat, blood, tears. That's not what Christianity says. Every other religion says do, and Christianity says done, right? The cross says it is finished. It's been paid in full, and the only thing left for you to do is receive it like a gift. Have you, have you trusted Christ for your salvation? Have you called out to him for mercy? Have you taken him up on his offer? He says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. I can't help but think that many people come into a church like this on Easter, and maybe behind a fragile smile, maybe on the outside everything looks clean and pristine and fresh clothes, but there's just emptiness and sorrow and sadness and guilt and condemnation on the inside. And Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. He came to set us free, but first you've got to confess the lies that you've been believing that have held you captive. Jesus came to set the prisoners free. Are you free? Do you know freedom this morning? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that because of an empty cross and an empty tomb, we have hope that can face anything. The most menacing things, the most crippling things, whether it's a disease, whether it's a breached trust in a relationship, wrongs committed, guilt, condemnation, oppression, addiction, just some type of enslavement, whether it's just crippling anxiety, suffering, most importantly, Lord, the guilt and the condemnations of knowing that we are sinners and you are a holy God who demands perfection. As you said in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore you must be holy even as your heavenly Father is holy and perfect. And we know we're not, Lord. We're not perfect. We're flawed. I pray that you would move in a way that would convict anybody who hasn't confessed their sins to you today, Lord. May they know that they don't have to leave here wondering. They can have peace and they can have assurance and they can have forgiveness. And I ask and pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.